This uh, story of Joshua, the crippled lamb, it's not just a, a cute story. It really, I, I think, uh, takes us to the heart of what Christmas is all about, what this Christmas story is all about. Because as I, I want us to see tonight, what the Christmas story is centered on, at the very heart of the Christmas story, it's about the inauguration of a kingdom where having advantages can be a disadvantage, and where having disadvantages, like Joshua had, can be a tremendous advantage, an upside-down kind of a kingdom. Uh, to get at that, I, I want to read a, a passage, a uh, selection from the Christmas story. This is found in Luke chapter 1. It's called the Magnificat. This is where Mary breaks into this inspired song. She's been told that uh, she is highly favored by God and that she would bear the Christ child, um, despite the fact that she's a virgin. Sometime later, she's talking to Elizabeth, her, co her cousin, who is carrying John the Baptist. And in the midst of their conversation, she breaks out into this, this song. She says, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state, the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. The Magnificat. I'm going to get back to this passage in uh, just a moment. But I want to start by telling you about my friend Cheryl. I'll call her Cheryl. Cheryl's not a real name. I'm not going to give you a real name because for all I know, she might be in the auditorium right now or listen later on through podcasts, so you don't know her. But Cheryl, every school's got a Cheryl, or maybe more than one. But Cheryl is like this super popular girl. She's cute. She's funny. She's got a great personality. Um, everyone likes Cheryl. Cheerleading squad, all of that. And Cheryl had a way about her um, where, especially if she was talking to guys, and especially if it was a cute guy, uh, you know, she could just... Uh, wave her head back and forth in a certain kind of a cute way. It was so adorable. And, and just kind of do the hair thing a little bit. And she always kind of touch and giggle. And, you know, she had just kind of a flirty sort of mannerism to her. And we would, in high school, say that Cheryl was working it. We, she's working it. Uh, and everyone knew when Cheryl was working it. She just knew how to get what she wanted. She worked it. And she was good at it. Sometime later, quite a while later, several decades later, I see Cheryl at a class reunion. And um, Cheryl is still working it. <laughs> and the thing is, is that what is, is kind of cute and preppy when you're 17 is not quite as attractive when you're 47. You see, there's a, she was still attractive, but she's still doing the little head bobby kind of thing, you know, and she's still doing you know, the little flirty kind of thing and all of that. But it's just like, come on, you're... We're not, we're, not, we're not 17 any longer. You're supposed to evolve a little bit. You're supposed to grow out of these things. She's still working it. And there's something sad about that. She was stuck. And what her life shows is that it's really hard to let go of a game when it's been working for you. 
I think sometimes, and I bet a lot of us know this, uh, the kids who in high school, maybe even junior high, who really had a game that worked, a shtick that worked, uh, they sometimes are the ones who later on, 20, 30 years later, are talking about the glory days. They're, they're the ones who are always looking back at the past. They're the ones who keep on trying to do what they were doing that worked so well in high school. It just doesn't work as well when you're moving on in life. Things are supposed to change. Cheryl had a game, and she couldn't let it go because it worked so well for her. The truth is that we all have a game. At least at some point in our life, we adopt a game, or we try to adopt a game. I think the world runs on games like this. In this fallen world, we all, at a very early age, we look for something that will set us apart. We look for something that will give us an advantage. We try to find something that will give us an edge, something that, that will get us noticed, that will get us some attention, something that will help us win, some advantage. And we work it. We work it. It's a strategy. It's how it works in this fallen world. And so all through school, the smart kids are trying to flaunt their smarts, and the cutesy kids are flaunting their cutesiness, and the athletic folks are, are, are displaying their athleticism, and the muscly guys are wearing their tight muscle shirts, you know, and the funny kids are telling a lot of jokes, and, and, the, and the rebel kids are working their radicalness, their rebelness with their clothes or whatnot. Everybody's got a game, and we work it. We work it. Uh, and it's a strategy to help us win some kind of advantage. Now, the thing is, is I, I think that this world is one big work-it scheme. It's, it's this fallen world that we live in right now. It's, it's like a giant arcade. It runs on games like this. Everyone's got a game. Uh, the world is one big Cheryl. And everyone's got their little part to play in it. We work it. And so individuals have their particular games, something that's distinctive, something that will set them apart. Families adopt certain kinds of games. Tribes adopt certain kinds of games. Nations adopt certain kinds of games, trying to find some kind of advantage, some kind of an edge. Throughout history, nations have always tried to find something that will set them apart, something that will make them exceptional, something that will give them an edge, an advantage. Uh, they found strategies. Throughout history, as you, you see this, throughout history, nations trying to find strategies and advantage to promote their self-interest and to further their self-interest and to expand their self-interest. That's why human history is, to a large degree, a history of bloodshed. Because one nation's game conflicts with another nation's game, and boom, you've got war. But that's how it's been in this fallen world. A giant arcade, and unfortunately, the arcade sometimes gets somewhat bloody. And then, throughout history, we've seen this. We tend to loop God or the gods into our game playing. It's one of the advantages we try to get. Throughout history, people have, on the whole, taken their own aspirations and their own fears and their own longings, and we project that onto the screen of heaven, and we call it God. That's what most people mean by God. It's a giant me. And so what's happened is that Throughout history, people have assumed that since we're into the success game of life, the gods must be into the success game of life. Since we are always strategizing, they must be strategizing. Since we're looking for an advantage, they're looking for an advantage. Since we want to win, they must want to win. And throughout history, we see that whenever uh, nations have won, they credit it to their god. Uh, it's because we have a winning God. That's why we won. And whenever they're blessed, it's because we're serving the winning God. And whenever they're healthy, it's because we're serving the winning God. And whenever they get more power, it's because we're serving the winning God. Throughout history, we've seen this. In fact, it's the essence of paganism. Paganism is about working a deal. We'll make sacrifices to you, and we'll serve you in particular ways. And your job then is to be part of our team, us, and, and to help us win. 
to help our strategies of success, to give us an advantage. It's the essence of paganism. It is also quite a bit like, uh, to a large degree, the religion of this land that goes under the name of Christianity. Success-driven gods. Success-driven gods. And so you find all over the place, conferences and books and sermons, all over the place about how Jesus will make you a winner. He's, he's the winning God. Jesus will help you be successful. Jesus will help you grab it all now, have your best life now. Jesus will give you the advantage. Jesus will give you the upper hand. And then we apply that on a national level too, don't we? It's, it's, you know, Jesus is on our side. He's, he's our God. He's on our side. He's our tribal warrior. And so Jesus is involved in the Europeans conquering this land. And Jesus is involved in all of our military exploits. And Jesus is the reason why we have so many toys. And Jesus is the reason why we have so much power. And on and on and on. It's the same old thing. It's the same old thing with a different name. Now the God's name is Jesus. But it's a success driven model of God, a success-driven model of life because we all got a game and we're all looking for an advantage and we all want to win. This story, the Jesus story, the Christmas story that we're here to celebrate this evening, if it means anything, it means that, that God's not like that. At the heart of this story, the Christmas story, is, is a revelation of God that is completely different from the success-driven pagan models of God. Now, we have to try to hear this story like for the first time because what's happened is that Christmas, like most other aspects of Christianity, it's been co-opted by the success-driven model of God. And so we just sort of, you know, don't see the essence of it, the heart of it. We just sort of make it a nice little quaint, little cute little thing. But in fact, at the core of this story, it, there's something, it is so radical and so beautiful and so transforming if we'll let it be that. And so I want to go back to Mary's uh, uh, song. And now look at that it, it, and pick out a couple pieces here that show us that God, the real God, the real God is a God who sides with the Joshuas of the world um, and, and uh, uh, births a kingdom in which having disadvantages can be an advantage and having advantages can be a distinct disadvantage. So Mary says this. She starts off by saying, He has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. The humble state of his servant. Mary is a teenage Jewish unwed young lady, and she was humble. She was in a lowly state. And that itself tells us something incredible. Here, God is coming into the world. God Almighty is coming into the world, which already is pretty crazy. But God's coming into this world, and when he comes into this world, he comes to this Jewish peasant girl, he doesn't come to the dignitaries, the, the rulers, the wealthy people, the power brokers, the politicians, the high and mighty. He doesn't come to those who are winning in the success game of the world. He comes to a gal who's at the bottom of the success game of the world. He comes to a gal who is not a winner by any standards of the world, is not, is not a, doesn't have power by any standards of the world, doesn't have any advantages by the world's standards, doesn't have any edge by the world's standards, is not a winner by the world's standards. That's who God comes to. When God decides to come into the world, he's clearly not a God, clearly not a God who uh, thinks very much of the success game that runs this fallen world. And then Mary continues and says, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble, the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, 
but has sent the rich away empty. The rulers and the proud and the rich that Mary is talking about here, these are the winners, right? These are the winners, the ones who have the advantage. These are the sheep that are able to go in whatever pasture they, they want to go on. Whereas the hungry and the poor that she talks about here, these are the losers of the world game. These are the Joshuas who aren't able to just roam wherever they want. Mary here declares in a prophetic way, in an inspired way, that the consequence of this baby being born, and this baby is revealing what God is like, that as a result of this, the whole world system is going to be turned upside down. Those who are winning right now, those who are high and mighty right now, they're going to be brought, be brought, brought low. And those who are on the bottom end of this, they're going to be brought high. A God who just turns this whole thing upside down. Not only is he a God who's not opting into the success game of this world, he's a God who opts out of it and refuses to participate in it. In fact, turns it upside down. And everything about this Christmas story, if we can hear it for the first time, if we can hear it with fresh eyes and a fresh heart, Lord, help us to hear it this way, it, it reveals this God, a God who's simply not at all like the pagan gods, the success-driven gods. I mean, think about it. We're talking about God. We're talking about the creator of heaven and earth, the Lord God Almighty, the one who's lived from everlasting to everlasting, the God who's omnipotent, the God who's omniscient, all-wise, this God has all the resources you could ever imagine having. This God has all the advantages. But notice this. He doesn't use his advantages to get his way. He doesn't use his advantages for his own self-gratification. He doesn't use his advantages to sort of impose his will on others. He doesn't use his advantages just to win. He doesn't just flex his muscle and decree that his will will be done. No, this, this creator, this omnipotent God, this God who's got all the resources... He, he, he uses his advantages, and he's got all the advantages. He uses his advantages to become a little zygote in the womb of the peasant teenage Jewish girl who's not married. This God, the creator of heaven and earth, uses all of his advantages to become a little helpless baby born into complete poverty. This creator the, the, who's got all the resources, uh, who has all the advantages, he uses his advantages to become a little baby born in a, in, in a barn, uh, wrapped in rags, put into a feeding trough, which is what the manger is. This God who has got all the resources, uh, all the advantages, he uses that, those advantages to become a human being who is eventually homeless, who's roaming about on the hillside of Galilee, uh, serving the outcasts, serving the Joshuas of, of, uh, of the world, serving those who are the most judged, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, uh, uh, serving those who are sick and maimed and the beggars and the poor, this is what God does with all the advantages that he has. He's clearly not a God who thinks a whole lot about the world's success system, that game playing that we get involved in. He's got all the resources, the omnipotent, omniscient. God holds everything in existence, every nanosecond, every molecule. It's all his. But what does he do with it? He sets it aside and comes down to earth and then allows himself, the omnipotent God allows himself to be arrested in Gethsemane. And then mocked and spit on and abused and whipped and pierced and then crucified. In fact, that's why Jesus was born. How does God use his advantages? He, he, he does it to do this on behalf of us. This is antithetical, absolute opposite what we'd expect given the world's success system. Not only does the real God, the true God, become one who is on the side of 
the crippled lambs of the world, if you will. He's the God who himself becomes the sacrificial lamb. And that is why Jesus was born. Setting aside all the advantages, all the resources, to become a little zygote, born in a barn, into poverty, siding with the Joshuas, and then being crucified. The question I want us to really think about is why would God do that? Why would God do that? That is so counterintuitive. In fact, on one level, it's insane. You've got all the power, all the resources, can do anything you want, and this is what you choose to do? Why would you go through the trouble of doing that? Why not just win? Why just win? You can win. Do it. I mean, why don't you just act like a pagan god? Or at least as people believe, pagan gods have acted throughout history. Why not, you know, just use that power you got, all those resources you've gotten. Why not just side with the righteous and then bless the righteous and, and, and give them the power and give the righteous military victory and squash all the bad guys and now the world will be a righteous place. It's simple. I mean, why, why not just act like the pagan gods? People have always expected them to act. And the reason they've always expected the pagan gods to act that way is because that makes sense. Don't you think? Why just squish the bad guys? There's at least two reasons why God, the omnipotent God who's got all the resources, doesn't do that. One reason is this. If God was into squishing the bad guys, we'd all be squished. You know what I'm talking about? So you know what I'm talking about. You're feeling me. It's true. It's true. Um, uh, you know, if, if that is what he's into, then, then, you know, the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible tells us that there's none righteous, no, not one. Left on our own, uh, we would be completely lost. Slaves to sin, bondage to sin, done. Uh, whatever you got going on in your life that's positive, that comes from the Father above, because every good gift comes from the Father above. It's all by God's grace. If God's in the squishing thing, we're all in a, a heap of trouble. And see, this idea, this, this idea that the world can be neatly divided between the righteous and the unrighteous. And it always just so happens that we are the righteous and our enemies are the unrighteous. This idea that we can divide the world so, so neatly, it is a demonic delusion. In fact, it is the demonic delusion that is the main driver behind bloodshed throughout history. The main thing that fuels bloodshed throughout history. God's into the squishing game, we're all squished. That's the first reason why God doesn't operate the way the pagan gods, we would expect the pagan gods to operate. The second reason... It's simply that God is a God of love. God is a God of, of unsurpassable, incomprehensible, indescribable, indecipherable, unlimited, immeasurable, uh, beautiful, magnificent, mind-blowing, breathtaking kind of love. God is love. And see, love operates very different than, 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 than just sheer power does. God's a God of love. And this is what, in fact, sets him apart from all the pagan gods throughout history. And this is what, in fact, sets him apart from the pagan gods that people still worship today, the success-driven gods, even under the name of Christianity. He's a God of self-sacrificial love. The reason why God used all of his advantages and power to become a little zygote in the womb of an unwed peasant girl, and the reason why God used all of his power and resources to be born in a barn and wrapped in rags and, and put in, in, in a feeding trough, and the reason why God used all of his power and resources to become a homeless dude walking the hillside of Galilee serving the outcast and the lost, the reason why God used all of his power and resources to eventually become arrested and tortured and crucified on the cross is because God is a God of unsurpassable, self-sacrificial love. 
You see, and see, love, the, the true love, the kind of love that God is, doesn't use advantages to compete with others, doesn't use advantages to get your way, to win over others, doesn't, get, doesn't use advantages to, to squish others. True love doesn't, does, doesn't use advantages to try to conquer others or impose your will on others. Genuine love, the kind of love that God is and the kind of love that we're called to live in, well, that kind of love uses advantages to come under others and to serve others and to bless others and to ascribe unsurpassable worth to others because that, in fact, is what love is. Ascribing worth to others at cost to yourself. Folks, this is the kind of revelation of God and the kind of love that is at the heart of the Christmas story. This is what it is all about. Magnifying this kind of love. What you do with what advantages you have. And this is where the rubber hits the road. Uh, Here's the thing. Jesus came into this world not just to do something for us. Though he did. And it was beautiful and magnificent. And we need to celebrate that. But he came into this world to do something for us so that he could also do something in us and something to us. Jesus came into this world to, in fact, transform us, uh, to invite us to, to be empowered to follow him and to imitate him. Jesus came into this world to transform us so that we could love like he loves and serve like he served and participate in the love that he inaugurated into this world. In fact, this is what the kingdom of God is, the reign of God. This is, this is what salvation is. Because salvation is participating in the life of God. Jesus comes, he does something for us to free us so now he can do something in us and transform us from the inside out. And what he wants to do in us is to make us followers of him. To follow Jesus means that we opt out of the success-driven game. Now, God's not against success. No, not no. he can use that. If you're, if you're gifted and happen to be successful, wonderful, he can use that. If you've got advantages, no, that's not your fault. God can use that. It's not, it's not that there's anything intrinsically wrong with that. But see, to follow Jesus means we opt out of the game. To follow Jesus means we opt out of this idea that we live for this purpose. We live to be a success now. We live to use our advantages so that we can win. We, it means we opt out of the idea that we use our, our advantages and our benefits just to our own end uh, and, and have our own game. To follow Jesus means that we, in the end, surrender all of our advantages up to God because we surrender our whole life up to God. And we say, God, these advantages are, co- are from you. Uh, they're a gift from you. How would you have me use them? To follow Jesus means we surrender all. Surrender all. And that's the purpose for which Jesus came. And in, in fact, truth be told, celebrating Christmas is meaningless unless we are also committed to living like that. Because that's the reason why Jesus was born. This is how we celebrate Christmas meaningfully, is we commit our lives to following him and living like him. See, this is also why, because it involves surrendering all, this is why the true gospel has always been, had had a greater reception among the Joshuas of this world who are losing in the world game than it has with those who are the winners of the world game. Because, as my friend Cheryl so wonderfully demonstrates, it's hard to let go of a game when you're winning at it. And so if this thing is working for you, and this world system's working for you, you got all the advantage, advantages, and for a lot of us it is, well, for us to follow Jesus and surrender everything, we, we feel the cost more than if we didn't have anything. See, the, the, the winners of the world system, uh, those who are, you know, who have all the advantages, they've always been okay with a kind of Christianity that, that doesn't challenge anything. The winners of the world system have always been okay with the kind of Christianity that's all about what Jesus did for us, but never about what he wants to do in us. 
The winners of the world system have always been okay with the kind of Christianity that just makes you feel good about having the advantages and, and allows you to keep all the advantages and maybe even allows you to get more advantages because Jesus is, after all, the winning God. That kind of uh, success-driven Jesus, the winners have always been okay with. But see, the true gospel isn't that. The true gospel, as we're seeing tonight, is the gospel of Christmas, and it turns everything upside down. The true gospel says that to enter into the kingdom means that he owns all. We submit all to him, and we put all that we have, including our time and our talents and our resources and our money and everything else, we submit it to him and follow him. And that's what it is to enter into the kingdom. And because that's the kingdom. Having a disadvantage can be an advantage, and having an advantage can be a great disadvantage. Because if we have advantages, and many of us do, probably most of us hearing this do, it means we have to, we have to surrender it and get ourselves into the mindset of a Joshua and to humble ourselves and to live as though we didn't have those advantages. So the bottom line, folks, is this, that God, God loves perfectly every person he's ever created. If the cross means that he loves the rich and the poor alike and those who are in upper class as much as those who are in lower class and, and all of that. No, it's not about God's love that's in question. But here's the thing. It's usually only been those, or more frequently those, who are the Joshua's of the world that have been open to that kind of love and to being transformed by that kind of love. And so my challenge to us this Christmas night is simply this. Can we celebrate Christmas in a meaningful way? Which means, can we celebrate Christmas with an eye on the purpose for, we, for, for why there is a Christmas? Which means, can we celebrate Christmas by surrendering ourselves to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Can we celebrate Christmas by taking all of our advantage and opting out of the success game of this world? Can we, can we celebrate Christmas by surrendering our advantages to our Lord and saying that they belong to you? Can we celebrate Christmas by now consecrating all that we have, all that we have, to be used in service of the kingdom of God? Can we celebrate Christmas by entering into the kingdom and abiding in the kingdom and committing ourselves to advance the kingdom? Can we celebrate Christmas meaningfully, which means by committing to use our advantages, not just for our own benefit, but for God's benefit, for the purpose of serving those who are disadvantaged, for the purpose of feeding the hungry, for the purpose of reaching out to the lost, for the purpose of furthering the kingdom of God? That, is, folks, is what it's all about. That's why Jesus was born. It's, amen. Amen. It's true. Amen. I'm going to close. Uh, I, I, I'm going to, we're not ending right now, but I'm, I'm going to, I want to do, I have a little prayer to seal this message, to seal this on our heart. And as I do, I'd like to invite the worship team to come up. We're going to end with another uh, Christmas song that we all know. And um, I, I, I just pray right now in Jesus' name, Holy Spirit, will you seal this message in our heart? It's so easy to forget. God, help us from being co-opted by the success game of the world. Uh, God, seal this message, engrave it in our hearts so that we would be a people who don't just celebrate what you did for us, but celebrate who you are by committing our lives to you. And Lord God, uh, uh, give us your heart and your characters that we may love like Jesus and serve like Jesus and look like Jesus and share like Jesus and expand your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Can we all stand? Let's let's close with Silent Night. Let's all sing together. Silent.
this place, I, I want to uh, invite the prayer teams to come forward. And again, if you're here tonight and have any uh, burden that you would like to share and have prayed for, I encourage you to do that. That's what these folks are here for, and we, we love to do that. I pray that we leave this place uh, with uh, joy and the love of Christmas on our hearts. I pray that God's love and power and grace would abide in us. And I pray that that love and grace would transform us so that we could be conduits of the kingdom to the rest of the world. So in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, this Christmas season, go out, love on the world to be transformed by the love of God. Amen. God bless you. I love you. Merry Christmas.